Well, good morning. We're going to look this morning at John chapter 10, the passage Jim just read. And this will be my third sermon on the five solas of the Reformation. At this rate, it'll take six years to do five solas. <laughs> That's okay. Recently, though, if you were at church night, uh, when Pastor Caleb was here, he spoke on justification by faith alone, sola fide. Today, I'll be focusing on sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. In 1741, the great evangelist George Whitfield wrote a letter to his friend and fellow evangelist John Wesley concerning a sermon Wesley had published titled Free Grace. Wesley surely believed in grace to preach a sermon devoted to free grace. Well, the sermon was in fact an assault on the doctrine of election. And so Whitfield lovingly but sternly rebuked Wesley for his opposition to that doctrine and for a number of his errors. One of the things Whitfield said to Wesley in that letter was this. He said, Oh, that you would study the covenant of grace. When you think of the word grace, do you think of it in terms of the covenant of grace? There was a time not that long ago that I held to a conception of grace that was closer to Wesley's view than to that of the Reformers, or I would say to that of the Bible. I did not consider myself to be an Arminian in the technical sense of the word, but my theology surely needed reforming. Well, thankfully, there were certain people in my life, my wife, my cousins, Pastor Ed, other brothers who weren't quite as eloquent as George Whitfield in their rebukes, but they helped me see where I had not been true to the scriptures when it came to the doctrine of election, especially as it related to the covenant of grace. So I actually thought about titling the sermon, Refuting Myself on the Doctrines of Grace. <laughs> Last Sunday, Pastor Ed's sermon was called, Because He First Loved Me. He emphasized the fact that God sent his son to die, not for good people, but for people who hated him. He talked about how we only love God because he loved us first and wrought a supernatural change in us. And though Pastor Ed didn't use the term last week, total depravity, he certainly elaborated on the concept. He showed from the scriptures how man in his natural state is an enemy of God and does not in any sense incline his will toward him. Well, if you were here for that, the substance of that sermon forms a very good backdrop for what we'll be looking at this morning. That is not simply salvation by grace alone, but efficacious grace alone. And the doctrines closely related to it, like effectual calling and election. Maybe you're here this morning, and the last thing you want to hear about is effectual calling and the doctrine of election. Maybe you struggle with those doctrines the way I had for many years, and they are a source of confusion or contention for you. Or maybe you're struggling in a more practical way and you don't see what studying such high theological subjects has to do with your daily walk. Well, regardless of where you are in your walk this morning, what I pray would happen is that the Lord would use this passage, this rebuke of the Pharisees, to help you see God's grace, his sovereign, redeeming, efficacious grace, to be a source of comfort, not confusion. So what I'll do is read through some of this familiar text and add some commentary, and then I'll make some observations about how God does everything to secure the salvation of his children. But first, let's pray. 
Father, I need your help right now. If this sermon is to be of any benefit to your people, it will only be because you are present with us and you guide us into all truth. Lord, please sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. We're not going to take the time to look back at it, but in chapter 9, Jesus had been rebuking the Pharisees for their reaction to his healing on the Sabbath. And in so doing, Jesus proved that they did not care to understand the proper use of the law, and they had in fact shown themselves to be spiritual thieves and robbers, or as he says in Matthew 7:15, wolves in sheep's clothing. There are no chapter breaks in the manuscripts, so this allegory is in part, at least, a rebuke to the Pharisees. And this sort of imagery of shepherding would have been common to the, his immediate audience, both the Pharisees and the people in general. But to most of us here in Queens, we're probably not well acquainted with shepherding, especially in the first century. So, so far in this allegory, Jesus is describing one of the two types of sheepfolds that you'd find in ancient Israel. The first one would be a walled-in communal sort of sheep pen that the shepherds would leave their sheep in temporarily, say when they had to go into town. And it would be guarded by a hired hand to watch and protect them. So the gatekeeper lets the shepherd in to gather his sheep, and the sheep only respond to the voice of their own shepherd. Because as it says, they know his voice and they follow him. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, when a shepherd entered the sheepfold, the sheep of all the local flocks were mixed, but he began to call and his sheep recognized his voice and came to him. In fact, the good shepherd was so intimately involved with the care and nurture of his sheep that he had names for them and he would call them by name. His sheep followed him out because they knew him, end quote. Notice also that in this part of the allegory, once the sheep are called out, they don't return to the sheepfold. This first sheepfold is meant to represent Judaism in particular, for that would have been most relevant to his immediate audience, and it relates to the bondage in which the Pharisees kept the people by their misuse and abuse of the law. But any dead works religion will do. On October 22nd, Pastor Ed spoke about how, outside of Christianity, all religious systems are, are systems of works or human effort. So here is described just such a system from which the sheep have been called to come out. Jesus, of course, is the shepherd, and commentators offer up various views about the gatekeeper. Some say it's the Holy Spirit. Some say it's John the Baptist. There are other views. I'm not really sold on any of them, but I also don't think the gatekeeper is crucial to Jesus' illustration. The Pharisees were hardly good shepherds to the people of Israel, and Jesus had no reservation about calling them out for their wickedness under the false pretense of holiness and self-righteousness. He calls them hypocrites and blind guides in Matthew 23 for the heavy burdens that he laid upon the people, and worst of all, for their failure to recognize Christ as the prophesied Messiah. 
thereby keeping their people under a yoke of bondage, even if they hadn't misused the law because the Mosaic Covenant never promised eternal life. The Mosaic Covenant is not the covenant of grace. Then in verse 7, Jesus uses a sheepfold illustration again, but this time he has in mind a rural sort of sheepfold, also in common use at that time. This is not like the communal one, in which there is a mixture of sheep with various owners. Listen to how commentator Richard D. Phillips describes this type. He says, These were smaller and less substantial and were used for the sheep's safety at night. The key feature of these sheep pens was that they did not have a door and only an open space in the wall of piled rocks. After bringing in his sheep, the shepherd would lay his own body across the space so that as he slept in the entry, he himself became the door. So with that picture in mind, look at verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Clearly, Jesus is using the picture of a door differently here than in the first sheepfold. In the first one, the gatekeeper is at the door and he allows the shepherd in. But in this one, Jesus is the door. He is the one who lays his body across the opening in the wall. And no longer does the sheepfold describe Judaism, something which his sheep were called out of, but now it describes a place where they are safe and they find pasture. Verse 8, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. That is not to say all the prophets who came before Jesus are thieves and robbers, robbers because obviously many of them were true prophets and they brought a true message from God. And they wouldn't have tried to climb into the sheepfold some other way. So these must have been false prophets or those like the Pharisees and Sanhedrin who opposed Jesus' message. But, it says, the sheep did not listen to them. God preserves his people from the call of false prophets. That doesn't mean that we're not prone to error or that we'll never fall for some questionable doctrine. But when it comes to the gospel, his sheep know enough of the truth they can, that they can spot a false gospel when they hear one. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door in the same way that he is the truth, the way, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way into the sheepfold. Now, an interesting point about verse 9. If you look up the Greek, rather than it saying, if anyone enters by me, it should literally read, by me, if anyone enters in, he will be saved. None of the modern translations that I've found have it that way. They all seem to have it as it is here in the ESV. And you say, what's the difference? Isn't the point to show that Jesus is the only way to salvation? And I would say, yes, I think that is the main point, and I don't think the word order changes anything there. But it doesn't mean it's insignificant either. I don't know what the reason is that the modern translators change the order of the words, but I think we miss something that hints at the fact that it's not just that Christ is the only door leading to salvation. It's that you can't even enter that door unless he enables you to do so. By me, if anyone enters in. This is consistent with what Jesus said a few chapters earlier. You remember in chapter 6, verse 65, he says, no one can come to me unless, the Father, unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We find a little later in verse 30 of chapter 10, 
Jesus saying, I and my Father are one. So you put it all together, and it sounds like the Father is drawing and the Son is calling. That is, the triune God does the saving of the sheep, and he doesn't need anyone's help. We will come back to that, but for now, note that it is only by Christ that you could even come unto him, by me if anyone enters in. Well, since we're addressing sola gratia, uh, grace alone, a subject dear to the Reformation, notice something else of significance here. If this second sheepfold described in verses 7 through 16 is the church and Christ is the door, then Rome has it backwards. Rome teaches that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, not this church, the Roman Catholic Church is the door to Christ. And if you want to get to Jesus, you have to go by way of its gatekeepers. Not so, according to Jesus. He is the door. He is the only mediator. And it is only by him that you will find entry into the true church. You want to come into this sheepfold where you will find peace and rest and lie down in green pastures? You must come through the door, which is Christ. And as much as popes or bishops or priests try to set up another door ahead of Christ, they have no ability to do so. They have no such power, and much like the Pharisees, they are indeed thieves and robbers, blind guides, and wolves in sheep's clothing. The church is not the entrance to Christ. Christ is the entrance to the church. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his, li lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand is just doing what he is paid to do, but he has no real commitment to the well-being of the sheep. And it's not just, in contrast, Jesus actually lays down his life for the sheep, not just in the event that there be some external threat, but he literally and historically laid down his life for the sheep, and that to save them not from wolves, but from the very wrath of God. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He is a willing substitute who gives himself that they might live. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So if the first sheepfold doesn't, in fact, describe Judaism, out of which Jesus calls his sheep, here he tells his audience that he has other sheep as well that are not of this fold. He's bringing them out from other apostate religious systems. Jewish sheep called out of Judaism are united with Gentile sheep called out of whatever dead works religion they're in bondage to. And they were gathered together forming one flock under the care of the singular good shepherd. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Romans 10, 12, and 13. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at verse 17. 
For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take, to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, the Protestant Reformation didn't bring an end to Rome's lies and authoritarian tendencies. And so we have some modern-day thieves and robbers to address. I'm going to read you a quote from a book which bears the imprimatur, the official declaration that it is free of doctrinal or moral error, according to Rome. So this is not just some random Catholic writer on the fringes. Uh, you're aware, I think, that the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice, according to their own words. That's not my opinion. That is what Rome has taught, at least as far back as the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, and the teaching's probably older than that. So here's John O'Brien, and I'm only giving a small sample because you can only take in so much heresy in one sitting. <laughs> Quote, when the priest pronounces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altars as the eternal victim, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. The priest offers up again the same sacrifice and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Altar Christus, for the priest is another Christ. Oh, he's another Christ, all right. This is the spirit of Antichrist. He claims to stand in the place of Christ, and that is literally what Antichrist means. Not against Christ, in the place of Christ. So if you read the old Reformed confessions and notice that they refer to the office of the papacy as the seat of Antichrist, now you know why. The Roman Catholic priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him an eternal victim. He speaks, and Christ bows his head in humble obedience. What did Jesus say? It's one of my favorite passages. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Who's in charge here? It sounds like God is. Jesus has authority to lay his life down, and he does it willingly. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And the author of Hebrews says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Who offered the sacrifice? Christ did. How many times? Once. Once for all. Why do you sit down at the right hand of God? Because his work is finished. The sacrifice is complete. Redemption is accomplished and applied, and the wrath of God is satisfied. 
Let's skip down to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. If you look throughout the previous chapters, you'll find that Jesus told them numerous times. And yet they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They didn't have ears to hear. So why didn't they believe? Because they didn't properly incline their free will like others had? No, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And once again, the word order matters. He doesn't say you are not among my sheep because you don't believe. He says you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. If they had been among his sheep, if they were chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, if their names were written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 3.5, then they most assuredly would believe. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen, we could have no complaint if instead of calling us as sheep and gathering us into the sheepfold, the shepherd had instead driven us off a cliff like the pigs that he cast demons into. We couldn't raise our voice against the shepherd. In fact, we'd have to cry out, justice has been served, for this man did nothing wrong, but we would be getting what we deserve. If you believe, it is because you are his sheep. Verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We won't get to the rest of the chapter, but these words angered the Pharisees enough for them to pick up stones to stone him. And yes, their reaction was largely due to Jesus identifying himself with the Father. But it's worth noting that the same words that incited the Pharisees to violence are for us the greatest cause of rejoicing. Now, why would that be? Why should the sheep be so encouraged by his words at the same time that the goats are angered by them? 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24 tells us, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, here's the effectual call again, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Same message, two different responses. By the way, it should actually say, to those who are the called, as the New American Standard has it. These are the called out ones, the same ones to whom Christ issues the effectual call in our text this morning. So verses 27 through 30 are surely the most encouraging part of this passage, because this is effectual grace, sola gratia, grace that actually saves. Salvation is of the Lord, and he saves to the uttermost. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Back in verse 14, he said, 
I know my own and my own know me. In other words, we love him because he first loved us. For many years, if someone would ask for a defense of Christ's divinity, the first verse that would pop into my head is John 10.30, I and my Father are one. But after studying this passage, I don't think Jesus was just throwing that in there as if to say, oh, and by the way, I am God. I think in the context of all that we just read, Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one in purpose. He is God, but more to the point, the Father and the Son are unified in their work of redemption. So it's not that, the, that Jesus calls his sheep and now the Father is stuck putting up with us. Well, if the Father draws us and now the Son is reluctantly forced to die for us. No, John 10.30, I think, alludes to the covenant made within the Godhead to redeem his elect, and no one can thwart this eternal decree. Christ calls his particular people, and these are those whom the Father has predestined to eternal life. Well, I hope perhaps you're seeing what John Wesley failed to see and what I failed to see for many years, that the biblical concept of grace must not be divorced from the covenant of grace. Covenants involve specific parties. In this case, God and his elect. Does it make any sense at all to speak of a covenant that involves God on the one hand and any number of unknown or yet to be determined people on the other? In what sense is that a covenant? When one of the parties is unknown and unaccounted for, can there be a covenant that God makes with sinners before time began, 2 Timothy 1.9, that doesn't actually include any sinner in particular? Remember, Jesus calls his sheep by name. These are a particular people. You see, it's easy to quote someone like John O'Brien here and be struck immediately by such blasphemy. But Romanists are not the only ones guilty of distorting the concept of grace. Sometimes the twisting of scripture is a lot more subtle. In a book that I had been heavily influenced by back when I opposed what you North Shore people like to call doctrines of grace, code word for Calvinism, uh, there was a quote by a 19th century theologian by the name of Edward Pusey. And this basically summarized the view I held. He was quoted favorably by this Protestant writer as saying this, quote, there is something wonderfully impressive in the respect shown by the creator to the freedom of choice which has been bestowed upon the human race. In the Christian scheme of salvation, God becomes the suitor. You know what a suitor is, right? It's a man who's trying to persuade a woman to marry him. God becomes the suitor striving to win the affections of men. Christ stands at the door and knocks. He respects the moral freedom of man and does not put forth his hand to destroy that high prerogative. End quote. Well, isn't that nice of God? He's very polite, isn't he? He doesn't want to impose himself. It reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza is leaving a message on an answering machine for a girl he likes. He's the suitor, you might say. And he really wants this girl to respond to him, but he's trying to play it cool on the outside, acting like he doesn't really care if she calls back or not, saying things like, you can call me back, you know, if you want to. The ball's in your court. 
I mean, God wouldn't dare disrupt the high prerogative of human freedom. He might like to save some people from eternal damnation. After all, his son did suffer the wrath of God for that very purpose. But there's no guarantee that the immutable plan of a sovereign God should actually come to pass. Listen, God, we appreciate all your effort. You might like to save a whole bunch of sheep. But like the great theologian Mick Jagger said, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> well, to that we should all say heresy. When you reduce the call of God, as we see in John chapter 6, and as we saw in our passage this morning in chapter 10, when you reduce that call to a wooing or gentle persuasion, you have effectively reduced the almighty sovereign God to a helpless and hopeless beggar. Because he ultimately has no control over whether the sheep come to him. He is at their mercy. Such a God doesn't raise up Lazarus from the grave in the next chapter. How could he? How could he be so forceful to do such a thing? He must merely attempt to persuade Lazarus to resurrect himself. He doesn't breathe life into dead, dry bones. He just simply tries to woo them back to life. No, God is nothing like the weak and pathetic George Costanza trying to play it cool on the outside, casually calling the sheep, but desperately hoping that they come to him. I want to tell you that if you're here this morning and you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, you don't believe that because Jesus asked politely and you were nice enough to let him in. You believe that because your previously dead, rotting corpse of a self was resurrected to new life in Christ. You have been made a new creation. Well, I later learned that Pusey, whom I quoted earlier, turns out was a key figure in the Counter-Reformation movement, Satan's attempt to bring Protestants back into the bondage of Rome, back into the first sheepfold, if you will. Unfortunately for such thieves and robbers, true believers did not return to Rome because his sheep do not hear the voice of strangers. Pusey will forever be remembered as an enemy of the Reformation and an enemy of the gospel. So I jokingly referred before to the doctrines of grace as a code word for Calvinism, but in reality that is fine terminology to describe the operation of a sovereign God in saving his people. The key component of Calvinism, after all, is efficacious grace, that God's grace actually saves. Listen to B.B. Warfield. He says, The distinguishing mark of Calvinism, as over against all other systems, lies in its doctrine of efficacious grace, which, it teaches, is the undeserved and therefore gratuitous sovereign mercy of God by which he efficaciously brings whom he will into salvation. End quote. That is to say, biblical grace is not the potential to save. Rather, it actually saves. The grace of God is a sovereign grace. It is a redeeming grace. And it is an irresistible grace that is intimately linked to the covenant of grace. This means that if you are his child, you are eternally secure in the family of God. No one can snatch the sheep out of the shepherd's hands. Now, what does this all mean for us? Here are some observations which I hope will be helpful in your daily walk. 
First of all, when we study the Bible, we should remember that it is a unified whole. God is a God of logic, and there are no contradictions in the Bible. So, for example, we discussed efficacious grace and effectual calling. We touched on substitutionary atonement. How does this all connect to Christ as our substitute? Well, my wife is a substitute teacher. And, you know, the strangest thing happened the other day. A uh, principal called and said, Mrs. Sabeda, we would like you to sub today. And she said, okay, who am I subbing for? And they said, oh, no one in particular. Just everyone generally. We want you to substitute teach, but you're not actually going to stand in for anyone, and you're not going to teach any particular class. It's weird, right? No, that never happened, and you, you know that because that makes no sense. Right? The doctrine of substitution requires that there is a specific particular party for whom Christ stands in the place of. He bore the wrath for our sins, and he mediates for us. He doesn't mediate for the whole world. He doesn't even pray for the world in John 17. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his sheep. The idea that he suffered the wrath of God for no one in particular, but just as a provisional or potential atonement, makes nonsense of substitutionary work. But substitution relates to other doctrines as well. Ephesians 1, 3-7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heaven with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Here we have God's choosing, we have predestination, we have adoption, and all of this is the result of his will and his grace. God's grace is effectual because it doesn't depend on you. Rather than take offense that there's no place for a so-called free will in this passage, instead be thankful that God has not given you the opportunity to ruin what he started. Because as you know, if man has the power to break something, he's going to break it. Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden, and his children have been breaking things ever since. But in the covenant of grace, there are no conditions that we must meet in order to remain within it. Christ met those conditions for us. If you entered the sheepfold by grace, by grace you shall remain in it. Because he is not only the author of but also the finisher of our faith. Just as goats will not of their own will become sheep, even we ourselves as sheep are still prone to wander. But his sheep, praise God, don't have the capacity to short-circuit the effects of God's efficacious grace. He loved us enough to save us, and nothing can sever the golden chain of redemption. So it is not that we make light of sin, but rather we make much of our Savior. Since Christ took upon himself the justice of God due us, we have been spared from his wrath. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Next, all of us, I'm sure, have unsaved loved ones. Some of you have lost loved ones recently. 
And I'm aware that some of you are anticipating such a loss in the near future. As the Lord gives us opportunity, we ought to issue the outward call to our unsaved friends and family. We most certainly ought to make them aware of the good news of the gospel, which saved us. And if we are mocked or rejected for it, we should rejoice that Christ would count us worthy to suffer for his sake. Acts 5.41 I'm personally ashamed of how many times I did not speak up when I could have. Or I did a poor job of presenting the gospel when I did. But ashamed, not because of the false idea that some people are in hell due to my evangelistic incompetence, but ashamed because I didn't give honor to the one who saved me from myself and the wrath to come. Saved from the wrath we deserve, it's only logical that we would proclaim the name of the one who died for us. And it is a privilege that God might use us in that way. But what you don't need to do is carry a burden of guilt as if God is shaking his head in disappointment at you. Because if only you had given that person a better presentation, then God could have saved him. No, God did not commit the eternal destiny of souls to sheep who couldn't even save themselves. The Lord knows those who are his, and only he can issue the inward call, the effectual call. Next, in the same way that grace supplies what we need for pardon from sin, so it also supplies what we need for power over sin and power in times of suffering. This is called duplex gratia. I had to throw a fancy term in there. It simply means double grace or the double benefit of grace. Another way of thinking of that is grace for justification, grace for sanctification, grace for pardon, and grace for power. So if you're struggling with a particular sin, I can tell you that going back to the first sheep pen described in verses 1 through 5 is not the solution. Jesus called you out of such bondage. Self-imposed religion or will worship, what Paul describes in Colossians 2.23, will not solve it. We need grace not only for pardon, we need grace for power. And the best way to take hold of that sanctifying grace is to look continually to the shepherd who supplies it. Faced with temptation or trials, go immediately to him in prayer. Take refuge in his word. Partake of the means of grace, like the Lord's table. Cultivate an attitude of thankfulness to him that he died for you and he lives that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete. Finally, preservation of the saints. Robert Bellarmine, the most one of the most important Roman Catholic theologians of the Counter-Reformation said, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Of course, because if you're not saved by grace alone, why in the world should you have any assurance at all? To presume that you may know that you have eternal life on the basis of Christ's finished work puts the priest out of a job as he is not called upon to make intercession for you. So some of you, I'm sure, are not thrilled about being inundated with the doctrines of grace this morning. But please note that Paul used these doctrines to encourage the saints. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that, we, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I hope today that you are encouraged by God's sovereign grace. The sheep for whom Christ died will be preserved till the end. Why? Because no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Whatever difficulty lay hold of the sheep, be it sin or suffering, nothing can overpower the loving, immutable grip the Father has on his sheep. It's been said many times before, Jesus is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner. Psalm 37, 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Are you struggling with assurance today? I'm speaking to those who believe the gospel, of course. Listen, you didn't break out of the first sheepfold by your own power and determination. Christ called you out. And you didn't earn your way into the second sheepfold. He brought you to that pasture. The one who called you will keep you. Turn quickly in closing to Romans eight twenty-eight to 39. Here is grace for pardon and grace for power. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. There's your effectual call. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Kind of sounds like God didn't leave anything up to chance, did he? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you are one of his sheep, the same one who pardoned you is presently interceding for you. And so then we have grace for power. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That passage only makes sense if God's grace is effectual and his, uh, is efficacious and his call is effectual. Brothers and sisters, the one who bought us, brought us into the sheepfold. The one who called us, keeps us. The one who predestined us, preserves us. The one who pardoned us, prays for us. This is why believers should have assurance. 
not because you fought with your spouse a little less this week than the previous week. That's subjective and relative. No, the Good Shepherd does not do all that we just read about, calling us, leading us out of bondage, dying in our place, protecting us from wolves, just to turn us back on our own performance when we need some encouragement and assurance about his grace. Your emotions are shifting sands, but Christ is our rock, and our hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His grace is sufficient, and in that we must rejoice. Father, thank you. Thank you for your efficacious grace. Thank you for the substitutionary work of Christ. As the hymn writer asks, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Lord, we don't know the answer. But thank you for your grace and praise you in your glorious name. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.